Hello and welcome to Public Sector Perspectives. I'm Hayley Ricketson. As Victoria steers tentatively onto the road of recovery and reopening, our attention is turning more and more to jobs and the struggling economy. How do we measure what has been lost economically and socially, and how can we use that in finding solutions moving forward? Connecting economic analysis with people-driven entities such as labour markets, social policy, and even the construction sector can connect the dots when it comes to numbers and people. And this is something that means a lot more in the context of a global pandemic, a struggling economy, and countless affected people and communities. Emma Gray of Deloitte Access Economics works in macroeconomic policy and forecasting with a background in econometrics. And prior to working in the private sector, Emma worked at Monash University developing their economic and econometric disciplines. It's safe to say she has a lot of experience dealing with both statistical and qualitative concepts. Welcome, Emma. Thanks for having me, Hayley. So you have a background in econometrics. Can you start by telling me a bit more about that? What is it and yeah. what sparked your interest in it? Well, econometrics is essentially the statistical mathsy side of economics. So it's essentially taking economic theories and concepts and then using data to actually put numbers to them and uh, create estimates of what's going on. So what really drew me to it was that it wasn't just about theory and uh, kind of big picture ideas, but it was actually a tool to be able to sort of prove things or say, yes, this is happening or no, it isn't, or, you know, put quantities and measures to things. And I think I just found that really rewarding and saw the potential to be able to use that to actually sort of create change and be persuasive. So what makes econometrics a useful way of analysing the economy? Well, it's really useful and kind of now more than ever to be able to put numbers to things rather than just explaining concepts. So when we're trying to explain things to both policymakers, but also the general public, being able to sort of put scale and numbers to things, which we can do with econometrics is really useful. So it helps make an argument. It's also... Uh, the policymaking environment these days, rightly so, is sort of increasingly needs to be fact-based and uh, rooted in provable impacts and uh, so that we can kind of say what impact something's going to have before we try it out. So econometrics is really useful for that in kind of convincing policymakers and politicians, but as I said before, also the general public that something is actually going to work. Do you have an example of that off the top of your head? Yeah, so we actually did a really interesting piece for the Victorian government a couple of years ago on quantifying the economic dimensions of gender inequality. So the Victorian government has a gender equality strategy and part of that strategy was to address the economic dimensions of gender inequality. So the way in which kind of wage disparity and inequality there interacts with and is impacted by 
gender inequality in a broader societal sense and then the economic and social implications of that. And so we use econometrics to really quantify the value that people overall, but then splitting out into men and women and other groups of people, uh, the value that's provided in terms of unpaid work and care. So household duties and caring for children and caring for ill or disabled family members. So that uh, work is women are uh, overly represented in that on average and do a lot more of that than men. And so we use econometrics to quantify that and show the value of that. And then also to quantify the impacts that various policy and other changes could have on improving equality in that in that sphere. So that's is yeah one of the many examples of where kind of using econometrics and actually putting numbers to kind of policy issues and economic issues is really vital to then inform a public policy response that can appropriately address the that can appropriately address the issues that it's trying to get at. You currently work at Deloitte in the macroeconomic policy and forecasting team. So what does that broadly involve and how do you usually engage with government? So we often focus on economic and social outcomes in Australia and try to assess how those are changing and what we can do as a society, as private business and as governments to improve Australia's economic and social future. And so we often engage with government because government are a major client of ours. Uh, so we'll do a lot of economic analysis for the government. Sometimes that'll be uh, providing our forecasts of what we think's going to happen next. But then a lot of it is also analysis, um, including econometric analysis to provide statistical underpinnings and rationale for taking various policy action. So how do you apply macroeconomic analysis and social policy and labour markets, for example? Yeah, so it's really important when kind of planning the future of the economy to have an understanding of where things are heading. And that also means where things are heading in a sort of compositional sense. So what are going to be the growth sectors? What are people going to really be demanding and so what can we do to make sure that we have an appropriate supply of skilled people but then also investment in the right areas to make sure that when the time comes we've actually got the people to work in the growth industries and provide the economy with what it really needs so that's a large part of our labor market focus is focusing on what we can do to get a to get a really smooth match between like supply and demand of skills and of labor and the labor market economics but also more broadly uh, other facets of economics all have implications and often quite complex implications for social outcomes. So who we're employing in the highest paying industries and you know who's getting the labour market but also other economic opportunities has massive implications for inequality uh, across gender, across age groups, across ethnicities and all other facets of diversity. 
During the coronavirus pandemic, where have you been most focused in, in your role or what have you focused on the most? So I've mostly been focused on trying to figure out what's going to happen next. So what is our path out of COVID actually going to look like? How long is it going to take? Who's going to be the worst off? Who might actually be well off? And also what can we do to try and speed up our path out of COVID, but also make our path out of COVID one that's back to an economy that could potentially be better than the one that we left before COVID. With the pandemic, we've kind of, you know, we've seen the way we work really change and transform broadly, whether it's certain sectors being closed completely or very restricted, and then a lot of us working from home. Do you see the pathway to reopening and sort of getting sectors back on track as being as transformational as that original transformation so to speak or do you think do you think we're going to sort of see a whole new way of approaching jobs sectors the workforce broadly yeah well it's hard to tell exactly where we're going to land and i think when the when covid first happened i was thinking about it from a very kind of economist perspective and thinking about the opportunities that it creates in that we don't have to just return back to exactly where we were before. And we can think about, well, what do we want to return to and then transform to go in that direction? I think there's still a question mark over the degree to which that will actually happen uh, because yet yeah, to go in a different direction does require a lot of conscious effort and often investment to, to go in a different direction. But one thing that we have seen already with COVID is that it's completely accelerated a lot of trends that already were happening beforehand. So for example, we've seen it with skills. Over time, we've had a shift away from skills of the hands, so manual skills, into skills of the head, so cognitive, things involving working on computers, but also what we call skills of the heart, so uh, human-based skills that can't be particularly easily automated, like leadership and creative thinking and problem solving. And we've seen through COVID demand for skills of the hands actually fall far faster than usual and that for skills of the head and of the heart increase far faster than normal. So that's just one of the many trends that COVID has accelerated. I think the trend it's accelerated that most of us are extremely familiar with now is remote and flexible working. So without COVID, uh, it would have taken many businesses and governments perhaps a few more years to get to the point that they're at now with technology and being able to provide completely flexible working options to their staff. So there's definitely been an acceleration, still a question mark over the degree to which things will be going in a different direction on the other side of things. So uh, how has it changed the way you see the Victorian workplace and jobs and the economy broadly? Well, first of all, it's shown me that I 
probably didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did. <laughs> I think before COVID-19 struck, you know, I'd been in my role for quite a while, had built up a lot of experience and felt like, yeah, I've, you know, I've really got this macroeconomics thing nailed. I'm ready to kind of think a bit more broadly and perhaps turn to some other subject matter. And then when COVID struck, it made me realise just how much there is to learn and how differently things can react to the way that we're used to. So looking at kind of the labour market and industry compositions in the June quarter national accounts release, I was scrolling through the quarterly mostly falls, the quarterly falls in uh, industry output and saw that the air transport industry had a 96.4% fall over the quarter in output, which essentially means the industry shrunk to less than 5% of what it had been in the space of just three months. And I remember thinking, I just could never have comprehended that a fall that large was something that could actually happen, was something that's possible. So to see a fall that large happen Um, I think put kind of macroeconomics and what I was and the truth behind the numbers that I was looking at into perspective for me Uh, and also yeah showed me not to get complacent with kind of what we think is the normal and the fact that oh that's just always going to keep happening because you can have these circuit breakers like COVID-19 just come in and completely throw all of that upside down. So do you think that you approach your work differently now? Does it seem kind of more or less maybe theoretical? Well, it's almost a bit more theoretical, but then also a bit less, if I can explain that. So we need to rely more on theory when trying to figure out what's going to happen next, because we haven't been through something like this before. The world has had pandemics before but we haven't had a pandemic during an era where the world is so connected where people where there's such freer movement of people internationally and within countries and also in an era where we have technology that fortunately has been able to let a lot of us work from home and still continue on with with our day-to-day in a relatively not quite normal way. So we have to rely on theory to try to tell us what might be happening next because we haven't seen this happen before. But then because we haven't seen this happen before and we there's only so far that theory can go in telling us what will happen next. So then we also need to really be staying on top of all the data releases and all the information that's out there and everything going on in other countries as well, even if we're focused on Australia, to try to just give us more and more little insights so then we can try to build up into more of a picture of what might be happening in Australia. So it's been a bit more theory, but then also more just really being on top of what exactly is happening in the moment and from day to day and month to month. So as we cautiously enter the reopening phase in Victoria and begin recovery from this second wave, jobs in the economy have become the hot topic. 
so what do you see as the biggest impacts of COVID-19 on the economy and jobs in Victoria from the perspective of an economist? So from the perspective of an economist, it's a bit daunting uh, because there has been huge job losses and a lot of those job losses have been among young people and among females. So it's it's a bit of a scary environment for a lot of people and particularly for people who already weren't that well off. Vulnerable people have been the worst affected during this time. Uh, so it can be quite depressing sometimes looking at the statistics of the labour market. That said, there are some upsides such as there have been a fair few trends that have been accelerated and some of those trends have been positive trends. Uh, so allowing more flexible working and also shifting to more human skills. While that might be a downside uh, for some people, I think it's also an upside for many in the sense that it's showing both the increased value of technology, but also the increased value of humans and the fact that we can't automate everything and the fact that uh, even though a lot of us are probably spending more time than we used to with technology at the moment, uh, we, we're also spending more time on platforms where there's a person on the other side of it. So we're realising the, the human value and how important that is, particularly during a crisis time. So I think that is definitely one big positive to, to come out of this. And do you have a different perspective if you consider it, consider your perspective as a young professional? Well, generally speaking, it's probably even more scary when I think about it from my own perspective rather than from a big macroeconomic, those numbers aren't real people sort of perspective because those numbers are real people and most of us know those real people who have lost their jobs and have had their lives and their employment impacted by COVID. However, I have felt really lucky to to be working in economics and to have that as my career path at the moment because it's been a fairly robust <laughs> occupation to be in in the middle of a global pandemic and Australia's first recession in 29 years demand for macroeconomics and views on what's going to happen next has gone through the roof. So personally, I've actually been more stimulated than ever and more engaged than ever in my job. So that's been a big upside. It's just the, the downside that a lot of the things that we are analysing at the moment and a lot of the numbers that we are looking at are real people's lives and they're not showing a very good picture at the moment. So what do you see as the most important things to focus on moving forward in order to reach the elusive COVID normal and stabilise the economy? For example, stimulus or government support and policy or workplace innovation, things like that? Well, I think it's really tempting, particularly as an economist, to want to jump straight to 
economic growth and stimulus and what can we do to get the economy back on track, uh, particularly because you know, putting restrictions in place on economic activity, it just feels so sort of counterintuitive and how could we do that and how could we consciously actually bring our economic growth down? But we do really need to keep in mind that our economic success is only going to be possible if we have success against the virus. So the first thing I think we really need to focus on is getting on top of the virus. If we can get on top of the virus, then we can really focus on stimulating the economy from a position where we don't have to be tentative or fearful that we might have another big resurgence and then that just takes everything backwards again. So I think priority one, really get on top of the virus then we can focus on stimulus. In terms of stimulus, I really think the government and the general public probably shouldn't be as afraid of debt and deficit as they are at the moment. So debt has never ever been cheaper than it is right now. And it's going to remain cheap for at least two to three years while interest rates stay much lower than they have been in recent history. So the cost of debt is cheaper than it's ever been, but also if we generate that debt by spending now to stimulate the economy, it's actually going to help us return to surplus in the future faster. Because if we're spending money to help stimulate economic growth, we're getting more people into jobs, uh, we're having more people contributing to economic activity, and uh, we're getting more taxes in and uh, money's flowing everywhere, including back into the government. So that'll actually help us get in back into surplus faster. The other priority aside from just stimulus and getting things going on the up again, the other main priority there I think is looking under the surface at what is actually growing and what's not. So really focusing on inequality. A lot of inequality unfortunately has been worsened during COVID-19. Uh, so we saw lots of young people and lots of women lose their jobs and people already in vulnerable housing or vulnerable employment situations being the first to lose their housing or lose their lose the wages the small amount of wages that they did have so I think we we as a society but also governments really need to focus on inequality and keep in mind in all of our modeling and policy making what are the distributional impacts going to be so if we're actually thinking about well how did, might this affect women differently from men and how might this affect different age cohorts or people with different cultural backgrounds asking that question first before diving straight into the policy and then being able to form a policy with those different impacts in mind will help us really be able to target some of the most vulnerable people who have been made more vulnerable during this crisis and it will help us try and bring that inequality gap 
back in a little bit and maybe we could even reduce that inequality gap uh, to a smaller level than it was before COVID. So would you say that the pandemics in some ways has really opened an opportunity to address a lot of underlying inequalities by kind of bringing them to the surface even more so than they were? Definitely. So I think a lot of us have seen through the news and through our work as well that there are a lot of inequalities and things under the surface that we knew about, but they weren't nearly kind of as present or really as evident and powerful in our minds as they have been now because they're impacting more people or the gap is widening. So on the downside, COVID-19 has made a lot of that worse, but then on the upside, by bringing a lot of that to the forefront and to our attention, I do think it creates a great opportunity for us to be able to see that and respond. Emma Gray, thanks so much for being part of Public Sector Perspectives. Thanks for having me, Ailey. That brings us to the end of this episode of Public Sector Perspectives. Public Sector Perspectives is produced by IPA Victoria. If you're looking for more ways to connect, share and learn, join IPA's growing network of professionals and become a member today. Go to our membership page at vic.ipa.org.au. And if you enjoyed today's episode of Public Sector Perspectives, spread the word on social media and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can get in touch with Public Sector Perspectives by emailing info at vic.ipa.org.au or via IPA Victoria on all the usual social media channels. I'm Hayley Ricketson, and thanks for listening.